Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter. You're on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world. On Faster Please, the podcast, I've interviewed guests on exciting new technologies like artificial intelligence, fusion energy, and reusable rockets. But today's episode explores another possible next big thing, biotechnology. To discuss recent advances in CRISPR gene editing and their applications for medicine and other areas, I'm sitting down with Kevin Davies. Kevin is executive editor of the CRISPR Journal and author of the excellent 2020 book, Editing Humanity, the CRISPR Revolution, and the New Era of Genome Editing. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks. When people talk about AI, for instance, they might be talking about different versions or applications of AI, machine learning being one. So when we talk about CRISPR, are we just talking about one technique, the one they figured out back in 2012? Are there different ones? Are there improvements? So it's really a different technique? So how has that progressed? I think... You're right. CRISPR has become shorthand for genome editing, but the CRISPR, the version of CRISPR that won the Nobel, that was recognized with the Nobel Prize three years ago, 2020, uh, to Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, was for one, we can call it the traditional form of CRISPR, and if I refer to it again, I'll call it CRISPR-Cas9. Cas9 is the shorthand name for the enzyme that actually does the cutting of the DNA. But we are seeing extraordinary progress in developing new in even more precise and more nuanced forms of genome editing. They still kind of have a CRISPR backbone. They still utilize some of the same molecular components as the Nobel Prize winning form of CRISPR. But in particular, I'm thinking of uh, techniques called base editing and prime editing, both of which have commercial publicly funded uh, uh, biotech companies pushing these technologies into the clinic. And I think uh, over the next five to 10 years, increasingly what we refer to as CRISPR genome editing mm -hmm. will be in the form of these uh, sort of CRISPR 2.0 technologies because they give us a much broader um, portfolio of DNA substitutions and changes and edits and give the investigators and the clinicians much more precision and much more subtlety and hopefully much even more safety and more guarantees of, of clinical efficiency. Right, that's what I was gonna ask. So uh, one advantage is, is, is the precision because you, you don't want to do it wrong, right. you don't want the mutations, you're, right. you know, do no harm first. So, that, so that's a, a big advantage is maybe limiting some of the potential downsides. Well, in the ideal gene editing scenario, <clears throat> you would have a patient with say a genetic disease mm -hmm. that you can pinpoint to a single letter of the genetic code um, and we want to fix that. We want to take, I zero in on that one letter, A, C, T, or G is the four letter alphabet of DNA, as I hope most of your listeners know. And we want to revert that back to whatever the most normal healthy people have in their genetic code at that specific position. Um, CRISPR-Cas9, which won the Nobel Prize, is not the technology to do that sort of single base 
edit. It can do many other things and, and the, the success in the clinic is unquestionable already in just a few years. But base editing and in particular prime editing are the two most furthest developed uh, technologies that allow investigators to pinpoint exactly where in the genome we want to make the edit and then without completely cutting or slicing the double helix of DNA, we can, we can lay up the sort of the, the section of DNA that we want to replace and go in and just perform chemistry on that one specific letter of DNA. Now, this hasn't been proven in the clinic just yet, right. but the early signs are very, very promising that this is gonna be the breakthrough tech genome editing technology over the next 10 to 20 years. Is CRISPR in the wild yet, or is yeah. it, are we still in the lab? Yeah. No, no, we're in the clinic. We are in human patients. So there's at least 200 patients who have already been in or are currently enrolled in clinical trials. And so far, the early results, there's a few caveats and exceptions, but so far, the overwhelming um, uh, mood of the, of the field is one of bullish enthusiasm. I don't want to complete this interview without sort of singling out this one particular story which is uh, the clinical trial that has been sponsored by CRISPR Therapeutics and Vertex Pharmaceuticals mm -hmm. for sickle cell disease. So these are primarily African-American patients in this country um, uh, because the, the, the sickle cell mutation arose in Africa some 7,000 years ago. Um, and so we're talking about like a pretty big share of the pop of the African-American This population. is about 100,000 yeah. patients just in America, mm -hmm. in the U.S. alone, and it's been a neglected disease for all kinds of reasons, probably beyond the scope of our discussion. But uh, the early results in, in the first few dozen patients who have been uh, enrolled in this uh, clinical trial called the Exocell clinical trial, um, they've all been cured, pretty much all cured, meaning no more blood transfusions, no more pain crises, no more emergency hospitalizations. It is a it is a pretty miraculous story. This this uh, therapy is now in the hands of the FDA, and is speeding towards barring some unforeseen complication or the FDA setting the bar so high that they need the investigators to go back and do some some further checks. Uh, this should uh, be approved before the end of this year. There's a catch though. This will no. be a therapy that, in principle, will become once approved by yeah. the FDA yeah. and the EMEA in in Europe, of course. Uh, will become available to any uh, sickle cell patient. The catch will, of course, be the cost or the price that the companies set because they're going to look for a return on their investment uh, without... Mm. And this is a, it's a fascinating discussion. There's no easy answer. The companies need to uh, reward their shareholders, their investors, their employees, their staff, and, of course, build a war chest to invest in the next wave, the next generation of CRISPR therapies. But the result means... The result of that means that probably we're going to be looking at a price tag of... I mean, I'm seeing figures like $1.9 million per mm. patient... So how do you balance that? Is, would a, is a lifetime cure for sickle cell disease worth two, maybe three million dollars? Will this patient population be able to afford that? In many cases, the answer to that will be simply no. Do you have to remortgage your house and go bankrupt in order to, you know, because you had a, uh, a genetic uh, quirk uh, yeah. at birth? It's, I don't know quite how well, we what, get what around at this. Least, um, you know, different countries will, will have different answers with yeah. different health systems. Yep. Do you have a sense of what that, debate is going to be like in Washington, D.C.? I think it, it's already happening in other contexts. Other gene therapies have been approved over the last few years, and they come with eye-watering price tags. The highest therapy price that I've seen now is $3.5 million. Yes, there are discounts and waiver programs and all this sort of stuff, 
but it's it's still a little obscene. Now, when when this, those companies come to negotiate, say with with the UK uh, National Health Service, they'll probably come to to an agreement that is much lower because the Brits are not going to say that they're going to be able to afford that for their significant uh, sickle cell population. Um, so, it, it, so it's your, is it your best guess that this will be a, a treatment the government pays for? I mean, what's interesting and what may potentially shift the calculus here is that this is going to this particular therapy is going to be because the disease affects primarily African Americans um, in the United States. Um, that may change the the political uh, calculus, and it may indeed change the the corporate calculus at Vertex and in the boardrooms of Vertex and CRISPR Therapeutics, who may not want the backlash that they're going to get when they say, "Oh, by the way, guys, it's two million dollars, or you're out of luck." And after this CRISPR treatment for sickle cell disease is available, what therapies might come next? Uh, probably a bunch of yeah, disease, yeah. a bunch of diseases that most people have, unless they un are unfortunate enough to have it in their family, uh, won't w you know, won't won't have heard of. Um, so there are companies that are studying using CRISPR to potentially correct the mutations that cause genetic forms of blindness, mm -hmm. uh, genetic forms of liver disease. So it turns out the liver is an organ that is very amenable to taking up. Uh, medicines that we can inject in the blood. So the other big clinical success story has come from another company in Boston, in the Boston area called Intellia Therapeutics, uh, also publicly traded. So they've developed um, CRISPR therapies that you can inject literally into the body uh, rather than taking cells out and doing it in the lab and then putting those cells back in, as in the case of I'm sure, I'm not sure that was a, that was actually maybe even even clear that there that you can do it more than one way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yes. it obviously sounds like it would be better if they could just inject Exactly. Right. So that's why people are really excited about this because this now opens up the doors for, for treating a host of diseases. And I think over the next few years, we will see a growing number of diseases. So, And it won't just be these rare um, sort of genetic diseases with often you know unpronounceable names. It may be things like heart disease. So there's another company also. They're all in Boston, it seems. Verve Therapeutics, which is taking one of these uh, more recent gene editing technologies that we talked about a minute ago, base editing, mm -hmm. and saying that, that there's a gene that they're going to target that has been clearly linked with cholesterol levels. And if we can squash production of this gene, we can tap down cholesterol levels. That will be useful in the first instance for patients with genetic forms of high cholesterol. Fair enough. But if it works in them, then the plan is to roll this out for many, you know, potentially thousands, if not millions of adults in this country who maybe don't feel that they have a, a clearly defined genetic form of cholesterol, high cholesterol. But this method may still avoid them. It'll be a, an alternative that they will consider versus you know, being taking a statin for the rest of your life, for example. Um. Where are sort yeah. of the, the, the CRISPR cancer treatments? Yeah, they're also making progress too. So those are in clinical trials. Um, a, little, a little more complicated. Um, of course, cancer is a whole slew of different right. diseases. So it's a little hard to say, yeah, we're making progress here, uh, less so there. But I think one of the most heartwarming stories, this is an, an N of one, so it's an anecdotal story, but there was a teenager in the UK uh, treated at one of the premier uh, London uh, medical schools um, uh, who had a, a, a base editing a form of CAR-T therapy. A lot of people have heard of CAR-T therapy for, for various cancers, and she is now in remission. So again, um, early days, but we're seeing very positive signs uh, in these early clinical tests. It sounds like we went from a period where, again, it was all in the lab, and then we that we might be in a period over the next five years where we're it sounds like a wave of potential treatments i think so yeah, yeah. 
Uh, and it's for as much as we know, I, we've seen, you know, articles, you know, the age of AI. Yeah. It really sounds like this is going to be like, you know, the age of biotechnology and the age of CRISPR. And I think CRISPR, yeah. you know, as with most new technologies, yeah. you get these sort of hype cycles, right? Yeah. And two and a half years ago, CRISPR, all the stocks were, you know, peak valuations. And I was I went on a podcast to say, why are the why the Christmas stocks so high? And I, I didn't, I wasn't really sure, but I was enjoying it at the time. Um, and then, of course, we entered the pandemic and biotech, the biotech sector, perversely, ironically, has really taken a really been been hit hard um, uh, by the by the economy and certainly by the, the market valuations. So all of the CRISPR gene editing companies, and there's probably at least eight or 10 now that are publicly traded and many more you know, poised to join them, um, their valuations are a fraction of what they were a couple of years ago. But I suspect as these first FDA approvals and more uh, news, more, more scientific peer-reviewed papers, of course, but more news of the clinical success to, to back up and extend what has already been clearly proven as a breakthrough technology in the lab with the Nobel Prize, doesn't get much better than that, does it? Um, then I think we're going to start to see that that biotech sector uh, soar once again. Uh, there are also non-medical applications. Yeah. Can you just give me a little yeah. state, state of play of how that. Well, how I think one of, the, one of the, so when CRISPR. In agriculture. And, well, I mean, yeah, feeding the planet yeah, is, that's, uh, you that's, could that's, say, that's, that's, that's a, a, that's a, a big It's a human health application, right. uh, arguably the biggest application. Um, I think one of the fun ones is the work of George Church at Harvard Medical School, who's been on 60 Minutes and many other, Stephen Colbert and many other uh, primetime shows, talking about you know, his work using CRISPR to potentially resurrect the woolly mammoth, um, which is sort of sounds like this, that's Jurassic Park on steroids. That's crazy. But his view is that, no, if we had herds, if that's the technical term, of woolly mammoths uh, you know, rolling, roaming Siberia and the frozen tundra again, they'll keep the ground, the surface, packed down and stop the gigatons of methane from leaching out into the atmosphere. I mean, we have just seen a week, I've been reading on, on social media, of the hottest temperatures in the world in the last, well, since records began. Uh, and that's nothing compared to what we're potentially going to see if if uh, all these uh, greenhouse gases uh, that are just under the surface in places like Siberia get uh, further uh, leach into the atmosphere. So that's the sort of environmental cause that Church is on. I think many people think this is a rather foolish notion, but he's launched a company mm -hmm. to get this off the ground called Colossal Biosciences, and they're raising a lot of money, it appears. And, you know, I kind of I'm, I'm curious to see how it goes. I wish him well. Also, from speaking of climate change, making crops more resilient yeah. uh, to the heat. I, I, that's another. Yeah, we just so one yeah. of the journals I'm involved in called uh, Gen Biotechnology just published a paper in which investigators in Korea uh, have used CRISPR to uh, to uh, modify a particular gene in the in the tomato genome. You say tomato, I say tomato, um, to uh, to make it more a higher source of vitamin D. Um, and that may not seem to be the most urgent uh, need, but I. But um, it, the point is, we can now engineer the DNA of all kinds of plants and crops, and many of which are under threat, whether it's from drought or other types of climate change, or pests, bacteria, parasites, viruses, fungi, you name it. And I've, in my book, Editing Humanity, which came out a couple of years ago, uh, there was a whole chapter about you know sort of listing of a whole variety of threats to you know our our favorite you know, orange couple 
glass of orange juice in the morning. That's not going to exist if we want that all-natural Florida orange juice. We're not going to have that option. We've either got to embrace what technology will allow us to do to make uh, these these uh, orange uh, crops, you know, more resistant to the to the uh, sort of existential threat that they're facing, um, or we're going to have to, you know, go go drink something else. Uh, I started out talking about AI and machine learning. Is there is does that play a role in uh, in CRISPR in either? helping the, the precision of the technology or in some way refining the yeah, technology? Yeah, I think, I, I guess, you know, hopefully you'll invite me back in a year and I'll be able to give you a more concrete answer. I think the short answer is yes. Uh, certainly in sort of, there's a lot of computational aspects to CRISPR mm -hmm. in terms of designing the particular um, uh, stretches of nucleic acid that you're going to use to target a specific gene. And AI can help you uh, in, the, in that quest to make those ever more precise. When you do the targeting, uh, in a CRISPR experiment, the one thing you don't want to have happen is for the little stretch of DNA that you've synthesized to go after the gene in question, you don't want that to accidentally latch onto or identify another stretch of DNA that just by, by statistical chance has the same stretch of 20 A's, T's and G's. So AI can help give us more confidence that we're only honing in on the specific gene that we want to edit and we're not potentially going to see some unforeseen ad, um, uh, off-target uh, editing event. Do you think when we look back at this technology in 10 years, not only will we see a wider uh, you know, a, a wider portfolio of potential treatments, but we'll look at the actual technique and think, Boy, back in 2012, it was it was a butchery compared to what we're what, what we're doing. Uh, we were using meat cleavers, and now we're using lasers. I think I think I think yeah. Uh, yeah I think in short, I, that, that's a slightly harsh analogy, <laughs> but it's it's um, you know with the the CRISPR the, the this original form CRISPR developed published in 2012, Nobel Prize in 2020. One of the potential caveats or downsides of the technology is that it involves a complete snip of the double helix, the two strands of DNA in order to make the edit. Base editing and prime editing don't involve that double-stranded sort of uh, severance. It's just a nick of one strand or the other. So it's a much more uh, friendly, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, genetically friendly uh, form of gene editing as well as other, other aspects of the chemistry. So I think um, we're gonna see uh, you know, we look forward to seeing how base and prime editing perform in the clinic. Now, maybe they'll run into some unforeseen right. hurdles and people will say, you know what, there was nothing wrong with CRISPR. Let's keep keep forming, let's keep performing the using the uh, originally developed system. But uh, I'm pretty bullish on what base and prime editing can do based on all of the early results that have been mm -hmm. published in the last few years on mice and monkeys. And now we're going to we're on the brink of going into the clinic. Right. This uh, this podcast is usually very optimistic. So we're going to leave uh, all the uh, the negative stuff for this part of the podcast. We're, we're going to rush through all, all the downsides very quickly. Yeah. First question. Uh, especially after the pandemic, a lot, a lot more conversation about bioweapons. And, yeah. Uh, is this an issue that's, that's discussed this community about using this technology to it, create a particularly lethal or virulent or targeted biological weapon? Not, not much. I mean, uh, um, if, if a rogue uh, actor or, uh, or nation wanted to develop a, some sort of incredibly uh, virulent bioweapon, there's a whole wealth of genetic techniques, and they could probably do it without involving CRISPR. I mean, there's another, CRISPR is in a way uh, sort of the corollary of another field called synthetic biology or synthetic genomics that you, you may have talked about on your show. Um, we've got now the facility not just to edit DNA, but to, to synthesize custom 
bits of DNA in, with, with so much ease and affordability compared to five or ten years ago. So, um, and we've just you know seen a, a, a global pandemic. When I get that question, I've had it before. <laughs> I say, yeah, have we just not lived through a global <laughs> pandemic? Do we really need to be engineering <laughs> organisms? You know, right. The natural whether whether you buy the lab <sighs> leak hypothesis the, or the the engine bioengineering hypothesis, or it was just a natural transfer from mm -hmm. from some other organism. You know, nature can do a pretty good job of uh, of you know of hurting human beings. So I don't know that we need to really worry too much about bioweapons at this point. Back in 2018, there was this big controversy over a Chinese researcher who created some genome-edited babies. Is there more to know about this story since then? Has it become a hotter topic of discussion as CRISPR has advanced? It's uh, So the Chinese scientist, uh, He Jiankui, who performed those pretty abominable experiments, uh, was jailed for the better part of three years. He got early release um, in China. Um, and slowly but surely, he's being rehabilitated. Uh, he's literally now moved his operation from Shenzhen mm -hmm. to Beijing. Uh, he's got his own lab again, and he's doing genome editing experiments again. Uh, he's he's trying to. I saw again on social media recently. He's got he's got a petition of of muscular dystrophy um, uh, uh, families petitioning Jack Ma, the well-known Chinese billionaire, to fund his operation to devise a new gene editing therapy for patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy and other forms of muscular dystrophy. I wouldn't want her Jiankui let, you know, within a thousand miles of my kids because I just wouldn't trust him. And he's now more recently put out a manifesto stating he wants, he thinks we should start editing embryos again. So I don't know quite what is going on. It seems the Chinese were pretty, yeah, they threw the book at him. Three mm. years is not a trivial prison sentence. He was fined about half a million dollars. Um, but somebody in, in the, in the uh, uh, government there seems to be okay with him back, back at the bench, back in the lab, and you know, dabbling in CRISPR. And I don't know that he, he's been asked, does he have any regrets over the editing of Lulu and Nana? There was a third child born a few months later as well. Um, and he said, all he will say is that we, we move too fast. That is the only uh, caveat that he has allowed himself for, to, to express publicly. Right. We know nothing more about the children. They're close to five years old now. Um, their gene, this one particular gene that was being edited was pretty messed up. Mm -hmm. um, but we know it's not an essential gene in our bodies because there are many people walking around um, who don't have a functional copy of this CCR5 uh, receptor gene, uh, and they're HIV resistant. That's why her, that was the premise for her Jankui's experiment. Um, but uh, he has said no; they are off limits. We we are not the, the authorities are not going to reveal their identities. Um, we are he, we are monitoring them, and we will take care of them if anything goes wrong. But uh, I mean, I think a lot of people in the West would really like to to help, to, to study them, to yeah. offer any medical assistance. Now, obviously, we have to yeah. respect their privacy, I guess. And maybe even the, the, the twin girls and the, the third child who was born a bit later, um, maybe they're being protected for their own good. How would you like it if you grew up in your, you know, uh, through childhood and into your teenage years to, know, to walk around knowing that you were this, this human experiment? That may mm -hmm. be a very difficult thing to live with so uh, more there, to come there, on there's that. no legitimate discussion about changing that in in, in the west or, or, or there was a, else. so there was a, a obviously in the wake of what her Jankui did there were numerous blue ribbon panels including yes. one just organized by the national academy of sciences just a stone's throw mm -hmm. from where we're talking today 
Um, and I thought that report was very good. It did two things. This was published a couple of years ago. Two important things came out of it. One is this, this all-star group of geneticists and other scientists said, we don't think that human embryo editing should be banned completely. There may be scenarios uh, down the road where we actually would want to reserve this technology because nothing else would help bring about the, the, a particular medical outcome that we would like. And the one medical scenario that they laid out would be what if um, two people with a recessive, a deadly recessive disease like sickle cell disease or perhaps a form of cystic fibrosis wanted to have a healthy biological child. There are clinics around the country and around the world now doing something called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. So if you have a family history of a genetic disease, you can encourage the couple to do IVF. We form an embryo or a bunch of embryos in, in the test tube or on the, on, the, on the Petri dish. And then we can do a little biopsy of each embryo, take a quick sneak peek at the DNA, look to see if it's got the bad gene or perhaps the healthy gene, and then sort of, you know, tag them tag the embryos and only implant the embryos that we think are healthy this is happening you know around the country mm -hmm. as we speak for hundreds if not thousands of different genetic diseases um, but it won't work if mum and dad have a recessive meaning two copies of a bad gene because there's no healthy gene that you can select in any of those embryos so in that scenario it would be very rare but in those scenarios maybe embryo editing is a way we would want to go but I don't see a big clamor for this right now and the early results have been published using CRISPR on embryos in the wake of what Her Jankui did have said it's a very it's a messy technique it is not safe to use we don't fully understand how DNA editing and DNA repair works in the human embryo so we really need to do a whole lot more basic science as we did in the in the original incarnation of CRISPR before we even dare to kind of revisit editing human embryos uh, another area is using these treatments um, not to fix things, but to enhance people, whether it's for intelligence or some other uh, traits, a lot of money pouring into sort of longevity yeah. treatments from Silicon Valley. Yeah. Uh, do we know more about the potential of CRISPR for either extending lifespans or again, selecting for certain desirable traits in people? Yeah, I don't think this, this sort of scenario is never going to go away. When it comes up, if I hear someone say, you know, could we use CRISPR or any gene editing technology to boost intelligence or mathematical ability or mus musical ability or anything that we might want. For or our, speed in the 100 meters. Or speed in the 100 <laughs> meters for, or, you know, to, to enhance our, our perfect, uh, right. you know, newborn. I would say, OK, well, what, what gene are you going to enhance? In intelligence? Are you kidding me? Half of the 10,000 10, genes are expressed in the human brain. You want to meddle with, start meddling with those. You you wouldn't have a prayer of of make having a positive outcome. So I think we can pretty much rule that out. Longevity is interesting because, of course, in the last eighteen months, there's a there's a company in in Silicon Valley called Altos, mm -hmm. um, funded by Yuri Milner, um, employing now two dozen of the top aging researchers who've been lured out away from academia into this sort of into this uh, uh, transnational um, company to, to find hopefully cures or in insights into how to postpone aging. Um, so yeah, that's gonna, I think that's gonna be a long multi-decade quest. 
to go from that to potentially oh let's edit little little our little embryo you know, our, our newborn um, son or daughter uh, so that they have the gift of 120 years on this you know <laughs> decaying uh, overheating planet um, yeah so there's a lot a lot to to wade through on that one and you have another book coming out can you give us a preview of that I'm writing a book called Curved Air which is about the, uh, the story of sickle cell disease it was first described in a paper from physicians in Chicago in 1910 who were studying the curious anemia of a dental student uh, who, who walked into their, their, uh, their, their hospital one day. Uh, that, that gentleman, Walter Noel, is now uh, buried back in his homeland, the island of Grenada. Um, uh, but in the 1940s, it was described and, and characterized as the first molecular disease. We know more about sickle cell disease than almost any other genetic disease. And yet, as we touched on earlier, um, patients with this who've not had the, the the wealth the money the influence they've been they've been discriminated against in in many walks of life including the medical uh, arena we're still seeing uh, terribly tragically uh, videos and stories uh, and reports of sickle cell patients who are being turned away from hospital rooms emergency rooms because the medical establishment just looks at a person of color in absolute agony with one of these pain crises and just assumes oh they want another opioid hit yeah. uh, sickle cell what is that so there's a lot of um, fascinating science there's all this hope in the in the in the gene editing and the, now in the clinic um, and there's all this socioeconomic and, and another history. So I'm going to try to weave all this together in a, in a, a format that hopefully uh, everyone will um, will enjoy reading. And hopefully so. a, a book with a, uh, a happy ending. I, Not every it, book about a, about a disease has a wonderful... Well, uh, they, they, I think a, a positive note to end on is uh, that the first American patient uh, treated in this clin CRISPR clinical trial for sickle cell disease four years ago, Victoria Gray, has become something of a poster poster child now. She's uh, been featured on National Public Radio on a whole series of interviews um, and just took her first overseas flight earlier this year to London to speak at a CRISPR gene editing conference, gave a lovely 15-minute uh, personal talk shaking with nerves uh, about her personal voyage her faith in god and what's brought her here now pain-free traveling the world and um got a standing ovation you don't see many standing ovations at medical conferences or genetics conferences and if ever anybody deserved it that's somebody like victoria gray did so it's a very it's a very positive early days but a very positive journey that we're on Outstanding, Kevin. Uh, glorious. I love, loved it. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Cheers.